Well, it's good to see you back. What is it, week five? Charts galore tonight, have you noticed? That's scary. Scary. Well, we're going to start with a word of prayer and jump right in. We've got a lot to cover, uh, particularly some of the biggest distinctions that there are in uh, Christianity coming down to the Lord's Supper. So we're going to look at that. We're going to work our way through some of those charts and try and understand what God's Word has to say about it. So let's pray together and we'll jump right in. Pray with me, please. God, thank you very much for your kindness toward us, giving us the opportunities that we have, not only to be literate, to be able to, to read and write, to think, to uh, process your word, your written word, and then to be able to go even further and to stand on the shoulders of people that have studied these things for many years, to uh, process and grapple with and think through uh, competing views on things that uh, really are very important for us to have a position on and to come to some conclusion on. Uh, we certainly want to think rightly about the Lord's Supper, about the day of worship. These things are uh, things that touch the church in very practical ways. And uh, depending on where we fall on these topics, we, we're, we need to rearrange everything as it relates to the church. So give us that kind of uh, focus and that kind of uh, sense of, of, of importance regarding these issues. May it not be purely academic for us. May it be informative. May it put some stakes in the ground, so to speak, in our thinking that will be immovable for many years to come as we not only listen to this lecture tonight, but sort through what we study tonight in the days that follow. So thanks so much for this crowd, for them making the time to be here. Pray for all those who couldn't be here. I know there's so much going on in the school districts and out in our community, and we pray, God, for those who can't be with us, that they'd be able to join us uh, electronically later and catch up in our study. So God, thanks for, for tonight. Guard our time. Uh, keep us uh, involved and focused. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the Lord's Supper, as I said, one of the biggest distinctions in Christianity, none bigger as it relates to uh, the Roman Catholic Church and Protestant churches and even shades within Protestant Christianity. We want to get to that. Before we get there, allow me some time here to go all the way back and get some biblical background on the Lord's Supper. I, I've got so much to cover quickly here under letter A, I just want you to uh, just... Instead of turning to these passages, I can assure you they're cut and pasted right out of your ESV Bibles onto the screen. But let's look through these texts and think through the history and the biblical background on the Lord's Supper so that we can come to some conclusions regarding this. Matthew 28, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 26, verses 17 through 19 reads this way. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, okay, most translations will add something if not a footnote, something in the text that lets us know this is the, uh, the festival or the feast or the holiday of the unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare uh, for you to eat the Passover? That was a given that that's what he would do. Uh, he said, go into the city into a certain uh, man and say to him, teacher, the teacher says, my uh, time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Now, this is what's important for us to note, the unleavened bread, the feast of the unleavened bread. It comes in the springtime. It's what we track our Easter to. The Jewish calendar is not on the solar calendar. It's on the lunar calendar. That's why it floats around. Sometimes it's early. Sometimes it's late. That Jewish calendar keeps getting adjusted. Uh, in the first month of the religious calendar, Nisan is the uh, Hebrew month name, uh, there is a festival. It is a seven-day festival that begins. The reason it's the first day of the, pass, uh, the unleavened bread, where are you going to eat the Passover, 
is because the Passover is the event, the holy event that begins the week of unleavened bread. So there's a seven-day festival that begins on day one by the eating of the Passover. So before we ever understand the institution of the Lord's Supper, we've got to understand that it is predicated upon the practice of uh, the, the ceremony of unleavened bread, and specifically the eating of the Passover meal. So let's go back in our thinking to Exodus chapter 12. If you know your Bible, Exodus 12, that's our institution of the Passover. And here's how the text reads, beginning in verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, God says. You know the story. They've been enslaved. He's about to release them. And in a, after all of these plagues, we're going to end all these plagues with the biggest of all. He says, I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. It just translates real well in English for us right there. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. You're going to remember this forever, this particular day, Nisan the 14th. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So the Passover that Jesus was celebrating when he instituted the Lord's Supper uh, was happening on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the Passover day, which was all about them remembering that they had been graciously passed over God's judgment which they deserved, just like the Egyptians, and plucked out from that. And, and it was because of that blood that was put on the lintel or the doorposts and the headers of the door, they were, uh, they were freed from that. And then God prescribed an ordered meal to commemorate the day. And the reason I underscore the word ordered here is because you've heard this Hebrew word transliterated into English. The word in Hebrew for ordered is the word seder. Sound familiar now? We call it the Passover Seder. In Hebrew, that simply means the ordered or, or you know, uh, the, the laid out, demarked uh, meal that they're going to take. Now, what you need to know about the Passover meal, uh, the Seder, is that it has uh, changed over the years. I mean, obviously, if you know anything about the current practice, you've got the cup of Elijah, you've got the plate with all the herbs and all the various things and the spices and cinnamon, all the things that go on the Passover Seder meal, and it becomes a very elaborate tradition. Uh, the, the Mishnah and a lot of the uh, writings of, of the rabbinic leaders had added a lot to this. But if you go back to God's prescribed meal in Exodus 12, it was very simple and full of symbolism all relating to the Passover historically and looking forward to the redemption that Christ was fulfilling on the night he took the bread, on the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, to practice the Passover with a whole new perspective. Okay? So there were three items on the biblical menu for the Passover. Three things that you were to eat. You're going to say, oh, we're going to go to this house, we're going to borrow this room, we're going to eat the Passover meal with the 12 apostles. Uh, what, what's on the menu for the night? Well, three things. Number one, roast lamb. There's going to be uh, some lamb to eat, and it's because Exodus 12 puts it this way. Tell the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Everybody and every family and every place, every dwelling gets one lamb. Verse 5 says your lamb's got to be without blemish, 
Uh, this is not a sick lamb, a deformed lamb, uh, a lamb with any problems, a year old lamb, a young lamb, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, Nisan, uh, in, in the beginning of the religious year. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel then shall kill their lambs at twilight. So when sun goes down, you take this lamb and you slaughter the lamb and you're going to eat it. Now, remember the calendar here. You picked out the lamb without blemish, one year old, on the 10th day of the month. You took one for every household. Every family got one. And then on the 14th day, you had to kill that lamb. So you took a lamb from out in the fields, out in your herds, and you were to bring it in now. And for a week almost, right, from, from the 10th day to the 14th day, you're now living with this lamb, which is a very important thing for you to recognize if you were to take a cute, cuddly, year-old lamb and bring it into your home, assuming like most Jewish families, you've got all kinds of kids there in your, uh, you know, 1445 BC family, and everybody now gets, you know, a bit attached to, this becomes almost a domesticated pet, as domesticated as you can make it in a week, but you've, you've all become very friendly with this lamb. And you you can't just pick one and, and sacrifice. You could do that with your offering. And if you had your offering as it was going to be established there in Exodus and on through the Pentateuch, you, you could take lamb from your flock and you had no personal connection or association with it, but that's not the way it was for the Passover. You had to become acquainted with this animal uh, from the 10th to the 14th of the month. Verses 7 and 8 says, Then they shall take some of the blood of that animal and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses uh, in which they eat it. So you're going you're to slaughter this lamb that you've become accustomed to. Now you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to put it on the outside of your doorpost. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire uh, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. So we've got roasted lamb a lamb that you've become acquainted with, a lamb that your kids are going to cry when you slaughter it at twilight on the you know, 14th day because they've become so accustomed to it. Uh, to summarize it, we could summarize it this way. The lamb was a costly substitute. This was going to keep me from incurring God's wrath. The angel of death would not kill the firstborn in my home. We wouldn't have mourning and a funeral if the lamb that I became acquainted with here for almost a week, uh, if that lamb uh, is slaughtered at twilight, the blood on the doorpost... And that will keep me from having death enter my home. That was the symbolism of the Passover. Romans 6.23, as we start thinking how these things shoot into the future and the New Testament realities, of course we understand the wages of sin is death. If anybody understands anything about not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament, and no one is perfect before God. Everyone deserves God's punishment. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 10 made it real clear that Christ was going to be the coming Messiah, the suffering servant, uh, before he was enthroned as the great king and, and the triumphant Messiah. He was going to be a suffering Messiah who was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and the Lord was going to make his life a guilt offering. And all of this, if you tie this all together, when John comes and sees Christ coming, he says... Uh, John says in John 1.29, John the Baptist says, and John the Apostle wrote it down, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, if you haven't even been around or all that accustomed in the Bible, you need to start drawing these connections, right? From the very beginning, we had this lamb sacrifice so that I would not be judged. To take my sin penalty away, the lamb would be sacrificed. The Old Testament prophets said, uh, a thousand years almost after the Passover, you had them writing about a coming day when one would come to take the sin away and he would be like that lamb. 
And in the New Testament, when he arrives, John the Baptist says, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we read in our text there in, in Exodus 12 already, the second item, uh, it, which is listed third, but in Hebrew, I believe it's listed second, so I listed it second, bitter herbs. You've got to now include bitter herbs, okay? Um, I mean, that's how the text reads. Verse 8, eat the flesh uh, that night of that lamb that you got acquainted with, that your family got acquainted with for a week, roast it with fire, and you add bitter herbs. Now, why would we add bitter herbs? Perhaps, and it makes a lot of sense, uh, and this has been the connection from commentators from the beginning, even back in Old Testament times, they would say Exodus chapter 1, verses 11 through 14, uses the same Hebrew word, same discussion, same concern about the attitude of their hearts. They're about to leave where they had been enslaved. Here's how the text reads, verses 11 through 14. Therefore, they set taskmasters over those Jews to afflict them with heavy burdens. And the Egyptians were in, the, were in dread because of the people of Israel. They kept multiplying. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives, here it is, bitter with hard service uh, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. This was oppression. This was oppressive uh, slavery. And this was something that was described in Exodus 1 as bitter. Now, notice, too, the themes that we see throughout the New Testament as well. They had uh, evil, oppressive taskmasters. They were slaves, not in a good master-slave relationship that we see some examples of and many in the Roman Empire. But in this case, this was a kind of, of, of evil, exploitive, oppressive slavery that is described as bitter. Uh, in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene as the Lamb of God and talks a lot about the oppression of slavery, and it always seems to trace its way back to sin. John 8, for instance, verses 34 and 36 says, Jesus says, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's oppressive. It's addictive. It's something that, that, that harms us. And if the Son sets you free, you're going to be free indeed. There is some release from this. So back to the prescription of the most important ceremonial meal of the Old Testament, you had roasted lamb and bitter herbs in summary because they remind me, as I'm eating it in Exodus 12, of the, of the terrible nature, the oppressive nature of being a slave in Egypt. The bitter herbs remind me that it is terrible to live in Egypt as a slave. Trace this theme all through the Old Testament, even in the worship, the Psalter, the 150 Psalms that track all the way through the middle monarchy of Israel. They're always bringing back this this reprised theme of freedom from slavery in Egypt because it was so oppressive and so bitter. And, and so it is that as we think about this, uh, and they think about this, they're about to leave and eating this meal in haste, they should never want to go back uh, to Egypt. It was bitter there. Now remember, it didn't take long until in the book of Numbers, they were saying it was great to eat you know, uh, onions and leeks by the Nile, we want to go back. But uh, one of the reasons this ceremonial meal had the bitter herbs that you had to choke down was because it was supposed to be a reminder you don't want to go back. You don't want to turn back. And we could preach that one up to see even the New Testament connections there. A little bit on that in, in a little bit. Then you had a third thing, bread without yeast. Verse 8 said this in the middle of it all in our English text, eat the flesh that tonight uh, was roasted by the fire. You got the lamb, you got roast lamb and you've got the bitter herbs, and you've got unleavened bread. So you've got the third element in the simple menu of the first Passover meal as prescribed. I know lots of things were added to it later, but this was the third 
ingredient. Now, why no yeast? Yeast is a big deal. It's like salt. That's another sermon. Shouldn't have brought that up. But if you look at yeast and track this through the Bible, you see a lot that comes up throughout the Bible relating to it. Even in, uh, well, let's look first at the ceremony itself. Exodus 12, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it. Here's how you're supposed to eat it. With your belt fastened, okay? Your sandals on your feet. That's not normally how you eat a meal. I mean, you, you, that's not how they ate it, much like today. Kick our shoes off, at least I do. Come home. I don't want to eat, eat my work clothes. You get your staff in your hand. That's for traveling. You're to eat it in haste, right? So this is like, you know, I, I just put McDonald's drive through. It's, it's a meal on the run. You're supposed to eat it like you've got to get out of town. You've got to eat it quickly. You've got to eat it fast. You've got to eat it standing with your staff in hand. And the Bible says in verse 39 of that chapter, it's supposed to be unleavened, uh, it's not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait. They had no time to have their bread rise. They had unleavened bread with no yeast because they, were, they, had, to, they had to split, they had to get out. We got to go now, okay? So this in haste had something to do with yeast that as you track through the Bible, there's a lot that deals with that. We'll come back to how we see that when we think about the urgency of the New Testament message regarding the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world and frees you from slavery, the slavery of sin. He says things like this, uh, at least the reprise of it in the apostolic writings of 2 Corinthians. He says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Christ is always doing that today, now. Rich young ruler, Matthew 19, whatever it is, his encounter with the woman at the well, John 4, get it right now. Let's deal with it now. You need to get right and your sins forgiven now. Now, Luke 12 deals with the yeast, which is always holding people back from doing what is right now, trusting in Messiah, aligning themselves with Christ. We find things like this throughout the New Testament. He began to say to his disciples, first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Don't want to be like them. They may be treating the, the, the scriptures, uh, they may be uh, dispensing the scriptures to you, sitting in, the, sitting in the seat of Moses in the synagogues, but just know their lives are, are, are messed up and they are sons of hell, as he says uh, in Matthew 23. Galatians 5, verses 7 through 9, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him. You've been infiltrated with something keeping you from obeying the truth. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. And then he says this, which we see a lot in the Bible, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. You have a persuasion in your churches in Galatia, and that persuasion is keeping you from obeying the truth. That needs to be extracted, and that's the theme we often see. You, you've got to get the yeast out. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. Do not be equally, unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship is light with darkness? Therefore, go out from their midst. There's the picture of the Exodus. Be separate from them, says the Lord. Let's cleanse ourselves then from every defilement of body and spirit. The yeast was that picture of those things that held back or persuaded me to do otherwise. I don't want to, to, be, to, to fall to that, to be persuaded by that, to be infiltrated or affected by that or infected by that. But instead, I'm supposed to be bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The picture of the yeast in the meal was that picture of let's get out of here. The gods of the Egyptians, they're violating, they are, they're, they're incendiary, they're insidious. They do things in our lives that need to be extracted. We need to go, we need to be separate, we need to get out. Unleavened bread reminds me that I'm quick to follow God, choosing not to fit in. I'm not going to adopt the culture of Egypt. We're going to move on, going to go to the promised land. We're going to worship. 
That was the picture of the simple menu of the Passover meal. You had the roasted lamb, the bitter herbs, and bread without yeast. Roasted lamb, substitute, plucking me out of God's judgment. Bitter herbs, don't look back. You don't ever want to go back to the oppression of Egypt. The bread without yeast, we got to hurry. Let's go. Let's be different. Let's not fit in with the culture of the Egyptians. We need to move forward. Now back to Matthew 26. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Okay, so they're having a Passover meal. By this time, by the way, they had included in the, the traditions, the rabbinic traditions, the cup, uh, which was, they, as you, if you know anything about the Seder now, there's four cups, and there was the cup that was representing redemption, the third cup. And, and so, anyway, there's, there's the cup and there's the bread. But this is interesting. Let's read it, verse 26. Now they were eating, and Jesus took the bread, and after the blessing, which, by the way, is not blessing the food, he's blessing God, that's what it always is, he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said this, take, eat, this is my body. Now that's really strange, because if you know the Passover, you've been trained since Sabbath school as a little kid, I mean, there's no connection there. I mean, the body of, of Christ, of the Messiah, the, the bread of the Passover without yeast is the body of Christ? Well, I guess I could pull some things together in my thinking. Christ is holy. He doesn't sin. No yeast. Oh, okay, but it's still out of left field, it seems, for these guys to hear that. He says, then he took the cup, and when he had taken the cup, he'd given thanks uh, and, and had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, of the promise which is poured out for, the, for, the, for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, when Ezekiel talked in Ezekiel 31 through 33 about the new covenant, the new promise that wouldn't be like the old one, that would bring in the spirit and forgiveness and take the guilt out of my life and all the condemnation, the picture was uh, continually of this washing which already the prophets had talked about, like the, the, the sin in my life being washed the picture of this blood in the ceremonies of the sacrifices, even somehow paradoxically, this staining crimson blood doing something to my account to free me from my, the guilt of my sin. So there was some connection in their mind, but even that, we're drinking the cup that goes along with the roasted lamb, the bread, and the bitter herbs. This is a strange, this is a strange twist on the Passover. And he says this, I tell you, I'll not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Of course, he's about to go to the cross. This is Matthew 26, about to be crucified and then resurrected, chapter 27, crucified, resurrected, chapter 28. This is, he's about to go. And he says, I'm not going to drink this again, even after my resurrection on earth. It'll be again in my Father's kingdom in the next epic. What's missing here? Uh, which is the main course. Where's the lamb? There was, there was no lamb in the Passover meal celebrated by Christ. Well, there was, but there was no mention of that in instituting this thing in all of the Gospels discussed where there would be a, 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 a left behind this, this truncated Passover meal, this tailored Passover meal, okay? Uh, now remember, the lamb was a costly substitute to keep me from incurring God's judgment. That was a theme that was clear in the minds of everyone who'd ever practiced the Passover. And when Christ comes on the scene and is called, even by his best friends, the Lamb of God, there was no mistaking what his cross, what the cross event was. It was, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. He was the one who was killed, Isaiah 53, so that my sin would be extracted from my account, 
as, as Colossians puts it, my sin and all that was against me nailed to the cross, I would be forgiven, just like the lintel of the doorposts of the house in, in Exodus, and I would, I, I would have my sins forgiven. Uh, let us therefore celebrate the festival. Wait a minute. Here's the Passover festival, Feast of Unleavened Bread, day one, the Passover, not with the old leaven. Notice the, the mixing of themes here the leaven of malice and evil. Here's another call to holiness, to live righteously. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, get all the, 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 the pretext out, get all the, 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 the deception out, the evil, all of that, the malice out of my life. Let's now worship God in the festival of this thing that Christ set up without the lamb, because the lamb has been sacrificed. We don't sacrifice the lamb anymore, but just the unleavened bread. Now, the cup is not mentioned here in this text. He goes on to discuss it later in chapter 11, and we'll look at that in a minute. Now, that was the speed version of uh, a biblical background on the Lord's Supper. But it, we'd be remiss as, you know, I mean, Athenians here, uh, Americans, I should say, but, you know, we, we don't have that Jewish background like, you know, they did. When all of this was instituted in the Gospels, there, there was some clarity about what was going on in terms of the background of the Lord's Supper. A lot of debate about it, but let's take that biblical background into our discussion now about the Lord's Supper with that in mind. I mean, that was kind of going by at 70 miles an hour, but you got, you got the picture, did you not? Right. 84 slides into the PowerPoint presentation already. Amazing. Okay, let's talk about some associated designations. When we talk about the Lord's Supper, I guess uh, this is the, the phrase I usually use, the Lord's Supper. Uh, you don't need to look these up either. I got these on the overhead too. Uh, I thought I did. I guess I don't on that one. Wow, where did it go? Okay, something weird's going to happen later probably. Um, a lot of slides in this presentation I put together today. The Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. I'll read it for you. Uh, when you come together, now this is going to sound weird, or you can look it up if you'd like, but here, it says, when you come together, is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Now he calls it that, assuming that that's the designation they're used to hearing, but the emphasis in that text is the Lord's. This is the Lord's Supper. Is it not the Lord's Supper that you eat? Because the, the condemnation that he's bringing upon the Corinthians here is that they were making it all about themselves. So he's, the corrective here is kind of emphasizing, italicizing the Lord's Supper. But the point is that I'm trying to make, that was a designation for what they were doing in the church here, years after Christ instituted this, taking the lamb out, never mentioning the bitter herbs, right? But only talking about the cup that was an addition, intertestamentally, and the lamb. Uh, I'm sorry, and the unleavened bread, okay? Lord's Supper, it was called. It's also called communion from this text. Uh, communion from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. It says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? That's the way the ESV reads. But some translations say, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? And the bread we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ? That's the Greek word. You know this Greek word, koinonia. Smile at me if you know that word. Koinonia. Koinonia means what? If I say koinonia and I said define it for me for five bucks, you'd say fellowship, right? That's the idea. Koinonia, commonality, connection, fellowship, communion. Our text translates it in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 10, uh, participation. So when I'm involving myself in the cup and the bread, he says I'm connecting. Am I not connecting with 
the body and the blood of Christ? Isn't there some kind of fellowship there? Okay. So that's why some people call it communion. Even though you won't find that in the English text of the ESV, the word koinonia is the word we're referring to. Okay. The Eucharist, you know this word, right? The Eucharist, number three. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24, which again, you will not see in English, unfortunately. Uh, but here's what the text reads. And when he had given thanks, Paul's looking back to these gospel uh, references to the institution of the Lord's Supper. When he had given thanks, uh, eucharisteo, eucharisteo is the Greek word. There it is. I can hear it. That's just a transliteration, eucharist, of the verb, uh, I give thanks, eucharisteo. Uh, Eucharist, I give thanks. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, uh, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Eucharisteo uh, became a word in church history that was used to describe the Lord's Supper because when he did it, he gave thanks to the Father. It's got a different reference when we use it and think, in, well, you don't probably use it as a Protestant, but no, nothing wrong with using a Greek word if you'd like to. Uh, but we're usually meaning we're thankful for what he's done for us. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, Paul says to the Corinthians as well. And the point is we are so thankful. I thank God, Eucharisteo, for his gift to me in Christ. But it started with Christ giving thanks for the Passover meal and instituting this. Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharisteo, okay? Our Eucharist, sorry. The Mass. That, that now we're getting into words that are used uh, exclusively in, in, well, not exclusively, but certainly associated with and aligned with, and you're thinking with the Catholic Mass. Uh, Ite missa est is, is hilarious in, in my mind because that's where we get the word Mass from, from the word missa. And, and if you, no one takes Latin anymore, but if you, Whatever, that's, I can't even start that sentence. In Latin, the word missa means you're dismissed, okay? Uh, I mean, this, in, uh, ere means to go. Go uh, and, and be done. Uh, go, you are dismissed. Where did that come from? Uh, in the uh, fourth century, uh, this title started to be associated with that because at the end, uh, fourth century, that can't be right. I'll have to look that up. Um, the word mass came from this because that became the liturgy at the end of the communion service, the Lord's Supper, when they dismissed everybody when it was done. I hate to name anything after what's said at the end of a, you know, at the, the, the program, but that's, it picked up the name. At the end, they dismiss everybody and, you know, well, let's just call it that because uh, at the end, we get dismissed. Obviously, they were looking forward to dismissal, I suppose. Um, Yeah, okay, various views. It really concerns me that what I know was on that slide is not there anymore. Um, I hope I have the right version of this PowerPoint. We'll, we'll soon find out. Various views. We're still on page one. And it's only 7.15. Wow. We're going fast. It's awesome. Uh, wow. Yep. There, there it's repeating. There was what I wanted. Yep, put it in the wrong place. See how cool that would have been to just throw those up there? <laughs> Look at that. Then I would have said, there it is. When you come together, it is the Lord's Supper that you eat. And then I would have said, cup of blessing. Is it not a koinonia? Communion fellowship. Is it not a communion fellowship? 
Yeah, and then I would have done that. And you would have gone, oh, okay, I get it, Eucharisteo. Yeah, okay, well, that's where it is. That makes me feel better. I got the right thing, I just put it in the wrong place. Various views. Various views. All right, you got a chart. Oh, finally, a chart. All right, let's, let's work this one out. Four distinctive views on this. The first one, of course, transubstantiation. Those are little letters, but can you read them? Wow, smaller than I wanted to see up there. But the screens are so much better than they used to be, so amen for that. That's right. Transubstantiation. Let's talk about that. Define it here in a second. Obviously, this is the Roman Catholic view. It is also, you may not know, the Eastern Orthodox view. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholics have gone to the wall in defining this, and the Eastern Orthodox don't spend much time defining it, so that's why they're not known for this, but it's their view as well. Um, proponents. If you want to look for the guy who probably at least initially spelled this thing out with great uh, detail, it would be Thomas Aquinas, who I, I hope you know. He's a 13th century uh, thinker this is prior to the Reformation, obviously. The Catholic Church was all there was, and uh, he defines and puts and codifies in his theology um, the, the definitions that we're about to look at here. Okay? Uh, all right, what are we saying? Let's define it. Relation to Christ. All of these are going to be relation to Christ because that's the question. I mean, clearly the statements seem to say is the body of Christ, blood of Christ. Well, what is it? Well, transubstantiation, you're going to go and get some unleavened bread. You're going to get some wine or some uh, fruit of the vine, as the text says. And what's happening there? Well, here's what transubstantiation teaches. The elements of the wine and the bread turn into the body and blood of Christ. Wow. Okay, that would be weird, uh, and, but that seems to be what we're reading there. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, you know, I do this. I'm, I'm participating in the body and blood of Christ, so uh, I can see where they'd come to that. Well, you can't really mean that they believe it turns into on a cellular. I mean, this really happens. Um, yeah, that's the teaching of the Catholic Church. Let me quote a few things for you. This is uh, Catechism of the Catholic Church, as I said last week, their latest definitive authoritative word from Rome. Section 1376 says, by the consecration of the bread and wine. That means when the priest stands up and does his rigmarole at the mass, right? The consecration, when he consecrates it and prays and lifts it up, there takes place a change of the whole substance. That's where we get the word transubstantiation, right? The substance of the bread. There is a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord. So it actually magically, boom, it changes substance. And the whole substance of the wine changes into the substance of his blood. This change, the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called trans, the change, substantiation. The substance changes, right? That's what we're saying. That's what the Catholic Church is saying. The elements literally actually turn into a replacement of the body and blood of Christ. The bread's the body now, and the blood is um, the blood of Christ. It is an actual, let's get down to the meaning. It is an actual sacrifice of Christ to atone for sins. Think this through now. I'm breaking the bread. I am, I mean, that's the picture now. It's wafers and all of that. But the picture was, we're certainly chewing it up and digesting it. 
in the Catholic Mass, and we're, at least the priest is drinking the wine. They don't let the laity drink the wine anymore. That was a uh, 15th century uh, swap, which some people are still mad about. But anyway, it's a different topic. No time for that. Uh, here, though, they're saying what's happening is an actual sacrifice of Christ. Don't let me use my words. Let's use the words of the official authoritative theological statement from Rome. Section 1367, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Note this now. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of the priests who then offered himself on the cross. Hey, the Eucharist is one and the same sacrifice. Victim is one and the same. It's Christ. One, one now is, is offered through the ministry of the priest, and then Christ himself offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of the offering is different. Okay? In this divine sacrifice, what, what you're saying is the actual ministry of the priest with the Mass is an actual sacrifice. No, this is a divine sacrifice which is celebrated in the Mass. The same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. Okay? That's the teaching of the Catholic Church. There is a sacrifice going on one and the same as the sacrifice that took place on the cross. It is an actual sacrifice of Christ to atone for sins. You get to eat the wafer, at least. Don't get to drink the wine anymore in the Catholic Church. But you get to eat it, and it's food that is now, because it's a sacrifice of Christ, freeing you from venial sins, right? Not mortal sin, but venial sins. And you know they categorize sins and I think we talked a little bit about that last week. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, we talked about, yeah, mortal sin gets washed away by the sacrament of baptism, according to the Catholic Church, and venial sins are washed away and removed from my intake of the Eucharist. That's why the sacraments, the way in which I get the favor of God, right, comes initially through baptism, and continually the forgiveness comes through my partaking of the Lord's Supper, okay? Don't listen to me. Listen to the teaching of the Catholic Church. Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1994, says this, section 1393. The body of Christ we receive in holy communion. Right? Now, they're not, that's not symbolic. That's real. You're eating the body of Christ. It's given up for us. He's quoting now the scriptures. And the blood we drink shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Right? Quoting scripture. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins. So I am being forgiven, not like baptism, because they make the distinction elsewhere in, in their teaching and their theology. You get baptism washes away mortal sin, the, the initial sin of Adam, but now you're going to continue to sin after your baptism. Those sins, those venial sins, seeming, you know, apparently you're not committing mortal sin, but those venial sins are being washed away now as you take the Eucharist. The Eucharist unites you with Christ, you get, he's given up for you, shed for the forgiveness of sins, and that cleanses you from your sins as you take it. Lastly, to explain in brief manner, transubstantiation, the elements can and should be worshipped, right? Which makes sense, right? If I said, I got Christ up here, he's in the backstage, he's going to come out now, he's been in the green room for just waiting to come out, now he's going to come out, you would worship him, Right? Now, if I said, well, I, don't, I got Christ here, but he's in this wafer or he's in this, this, this chalice, I mean, the same would hold true. Don't believe me? Listen to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, section 1378. Worship the Eucharist is the title of this section that begins with this paragraph. It's called Worship of the Eucharist. 
In the liturgy of the Mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and, and wine. Now, did you catch that? In the liturgy of the Mass, we express, we're showing, we're demonstrating our faith, our belief, our confidence in the real presence of Christ, that he's really there because of, it's been consecrated by the priest, that it's there under the species of the bread and the wine. How do we, how do we show that? Among other ways, by genuflecting and bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord, because the Lord is those elements now, and he's about to be sacrificed again at the altar by the priest. Okay, you track that? That is the teaching of transubstantiation in a box, in a nutshell. Okay, Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox Church, elements turned into the body and blood of Christ. It's an actual sacrifice, food that frees me from venial sins, and its elements can and should be worshipped. We should worship them. That doesn't sound like a communion service at our church. Praise the Lord you noticed that, that distinction. Let's keep moving across the chart. Consubstantiation. The doctrine of consubstantiation is not held to by the Catholics. This was a modified, mitigated view. Okay? Who holds this view? The Lutherans do. The Lutherans do. On El Toro there, it's funny because there's a Catholic church on one side of the street and a Lutheran church on the other, and the sign above, uh, if you've seen that, notice that over there by, in Laguna Woods, there's an arrow that says, Lutheran church, Catholic church. It always makes me smile when I drive by. A lot of blood shed over that, and now there's a nice pretty green sign saying, Take, take your pick. Well, who do you think the proponent of this was? Not Thomas Aquinas. Sure. Jolly old Martin Luther. Martin Luther was the architect of defining and clarifying what has come to be known as consubstantiation. Now, substantiation, you get that. The substance, that's the question. Transubstantiation, this is easy to understand. We get it. Trans, it, tr it, it, it turns into, it transforms into a different substance. Consubstantiation, Luther rejected the fact that the priest, because he didn't care for the priest, could actually in the mass change by any kind of a delegated authority or inherent authority those elements into the body of Christ. He rejected that. He said, no, those elements do not turn in to the body and blood of Christ. But being trained as a priest, as he was, and a monk, uh, he had nowhere else to go in his thinking as the doctrine had developed from the 13th century on. Uh, he, what was he going to say? Well, here's what he said. Here was his modified view. Christ is actually with, in, and under the elements. And that's just kind of, if you read anything on theology, that's how they like to say it. That's how he stated it. In, with, and under. He's all over it. But he's not the wafer, and he's not the wine, but he's actually there with it. Con substantiation. Get that, right? Con. Get it. Con substantiation. Christ is with it. What's the relation of Christ to the elements? He's there, all over it. Not it, but with it. Now, let's. what do they mean by all this? Well, when you take the communion in a Lutheran church, if you're good Lutheran at least, holding to consubstantiation, you believe that this is a means of grace. They'll call it a sacrament. They have no problem calling it a sacrament, even though a lot of people call these things sacraments and don't know what they're saying. But the, 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 they do believe that there's some kind of grace given to you in the taking of 
the Lord's Supper. Okay? Well, what, kind, what do we get? They'll state it forthrightly. Through it, through the taking and partaking of it, we receive forgiveness. Now, they didn't turn it into anything, but Christ is there choosing to be with it because he did say, this is my body, this is my blood. Well, I don't think the priests have any power to turn it into that, but Christ must show up there in some special way. And then when we take it, as he said, the for, it's for the forgiveness of sins. So when I take it, I must be getting some forgiveness from God. And not only that, he liked to say this too, through it, I get confirmed in my faith. It strengthens my faith. It's a means of God's goodness and favor into my life by giving me through the elements in kind of a fuzzy way, forgiveness and confidence and assurance in my faith. My faith is built by taking and being nourished by the Lord's Supper. And I could have quoted all these things, uh, but usually not, I don't get a lot of people arguing with what I say about Catholicism. Not many people argue with me about what I say about Lutheranism. So I don't have all the quotes. So I could bore you with all those. But this was already like a 171-slide presentation, so I had no, no energy left at the end of the day to do it. Uh, but I will make this clear distinction. We talked last week about ex opere operato. Remember that Latin phrase that was so important in baptism? Does the sacrament, in this case, we'll use their terms, does the sacrament operate because of the divine power in and of itself? Okay? In baptism, you've got to believe that. You have to say that because I'm baptizing infants who have no clue. They just, have, they just want a dry diaper and want to have lunch. right? They want milk. So we believe the teaching of the Catholic Church was ex opere operato. It works because it's just done to you. Luther rejected that, and he said, no. The only benefits you get through the Lord's Supper is when you bring faith to the meal. So when you, with your confidence in Christ, you trust in Him, the power is not in the communion service itself, but only by means of your faith. So you derive the forgiveness and the confirmation of your faith only as you bring your faith to the Lord's Supper. Okay, the third column. Let's head this one up with the word spiritual meal. Um, Presbyterians would be in this column. Reformed churches would be in this column. And of course, we think about the Reformed tradition. We can think, of course, of John Calvin. So John Calvin, a key a proponent of this, although Calvin didn't represent all the Reformed thinking on this. And of course, Luther with Calvin uh, were all making a distinction between transubstantiation uh, so let's think in these terms. It's not in that third box now that the elements turn into the body and blood of Christ. And it's not even as Luther would say, in, with, under the elements. But Christ would be presented in this view as being spiritually present in the elements. And they, they use terms like intrinsic efficacy. There's a mysterious sense of Christ's presence. And, and in a sense, as we eat the Lord's Supper, uh, we are, are receiving Christ and we're appropriating in a spiritual way uh, Christ in, an, in a fresh and new way each time we partake of the meal. So Christ is spiritually present in the elements. Uh, let's use the phrase again, and, and this is common with the Lutheran view. It is described as a means of grace. We can see that throughout the confessions of the Reformed Church. Uh, they would say in the second bullet point there that we feed upon Christ's and the benefits of his death. But unlike kind of the directional sense of you would see from the Lutherans and certainly the Roman Catholics of Christ coming down to be in the elements, the sense of Christ being spiritually present would be as though he's bringing us up to Christ. Christ having the body of the, the glorified body of Christ being at the right hand of the Father, we are just participating in the meal and having this mysterious 
uh, connection with Jesus in the elements, but we are being brought up in our own spirit uh, to, to feast on the Lord, to commune with the Lord. This spiritual feasting, uh, the reformers and the Puritans talked about, uh, that, that Christ is not brought to us, but we're brought to him. Uh, faith and self-examination are necessary conditions for this. Uh, you can look at the Westminster Confession, for instance, chapter 24, section 7, that, that begins that section with the words, worthy receivers. you got to be a worthy receiver. You have to bring your faith and your confession of your sin to the meal, and you're then outwardly partaking in the visible elements, right? In the sacrament, they would say, and when we do inwardly by faith, really and indeed, not in a carnal or a fleshly way, uh, but in a spiritual way, we're receiving and feeding upon Christ, to quote uh, the Westminster Confession. So this idea of a spiritual engagement, we feed upon Christ. And then the last bullet point there in the chart, it seals us with assurances. It does something to us. There's a sense in which we are not just uh, actively remembering the, the, what Christ has done for us, as we'll see in the next column, but we are passively receiving an experience, in a sense, as we engage with a, a worthy heart, with a faith-filled heart, with confession. So this is distinct from the Lutheran view, and it will be distinct from our next column here, but the idea is that we have this encounter with the Lord. It's a very uh, spiritual, intimate, personal, uh, even subjective, you might say, encounter of, of worship with Christ as I feast on Christ in a a spiritual sense, and, and there's some kind of efficacy in this, in that I am brought to a place of being renewed and refreshed and sealed with a sense of assurance of Christ's forgiveness, which of course this whole meal is to represent. Look at the views. Elements turn in the body of blood. Lutheran view, he's actually in, with, or under the elements. Reformed view, he's spiritually in the elements and providing some grace in some way to us as we partake. Lastly, Memorial meal, let's call it that. The memorial meal. People that believe this would be like Baptist churches, Bible churches, Compass Bible Church, EV Free churches, uh, Calvary chapels, you name it. A lot of evangelical churches under this banner right here. Okay? Primary proponent of this, and you can see this kind of cascading from the Reformation, from all the, the Middle Ages, belief in transubstantiation to... Luther's view of consubstantiation to Calvin's view of a spiritual presence, you then had Zwingli come along, and Ulrich Zwingli said, no, 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 uh, you guys are all wrong. And people still hate him for this view, but I, I think he was right. Christ, he says, it doesn't become it, and he's not actually there, and he's not spiritually there any more than he is, you know, in anything else as being present in the person of the Holy Spirit, omnipresent all over the world. He's not, there's no, no special presence there. Okay? It's, it's a wafer, it's unleavened bread, it's a cup of wine or a cup of, of, of fruit from the vine, grape juice, whatever. It's, it is what it is, and it's not that there's some power in the element, and it's not that there's something spiritually taking place when I participate in it, in it like the Calvinistic or the Lutheran view uh, would state. He simply says it commemorates Christ's death. It is an act of remembrance. That's what we mean by commemorate. I am intending in taking this to take my mind back as Christ commanded, do this in remembrance of me, and everything related to the verbiage of turning into and not turning into, we'll get to that, but he's saying what most of our churches, well, not most of our church, a lot of churches don't believe it, but what our church would teach, what I would teach, and what I believe is that all of these things are uh, 
they are all word pictures regarding the profundity of what Christ is doing on the cross. More on that in a minute. Keep going on this. There's only one more. Uh, and we're reminded, that's the point, we are reminded of the benefits of Christ's redemptive work. And that's important, critically important in the worship of the church. We come back to remembering that. We preach Christ crucified, and then we have this ordinance of Christ that doesn't, it doesn't become a means of grace any more than anything else that brings our mind back to Christ would be a means of grace. If you want to use that phrase, and I know a lot of people who haven't split the hairs of theology very well like to use that in circles like ours, you can call it that if you want, but what's the point? What are you saying? See, Calvin said something more than what Zwingli said, and he's certainly saying something more than I would say, or certainly... Uh, you know, Calvin, or Luther saying way more than I would ever say, and that would be, yes, clearly there's a benefit to taking the Lord's Supper, right? But the benefit is what's going on here in your mind to take your faith back, to strengthen your faith in what took place. And if you've heard me lead communion, you hear that's how I do it. I bring your minds back to it. I try to get you to celebrate it in your heart. I get you to affirm the, with faith that you trust in that, and, and I hope you're spiritually strengthened by that. But it's not by the eating and it's not by the drinking. Those are the tangible uh, uh, elements that God, Christ puts us through to remember it, just like baptism. Right? There's nothing in the water. There's nothing mystical that takes place. He's not in the water, with the water, under the water. Right? The, the picture is of us remembering Christ. And again, Zwingli's been uh, castigated by some and, and maligned by some because it's like, well, he makes the, the Lord's Supper nothing. I, I don't believe that, being of the memorial meal view, I, I think it's very significant, but it's not what is taught in consubstantiation or a spiritual meal. So in Protestantism, there's con, spiritual, and memorial, okay? You're pastors of the memorial view. Uh, well, what do you do with those statements about blood and the blood? This is my all oh, Great. Let me give you some other examples from the book of John, because John is one uh, who hits this real hard in chapter 6. But in chapter 8, he says this. We're still on the first page. Jesus spoke to them and he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We read that, you have no problem with that, but you don't think Christ is in, with, under, or turns into photons, right? You, you, you get it. Uh, I think we should get the fact that Christ is not turning wine into his blood or turning bread into his body. And he's not trying to say, well, I have a special relationship with bread and wine or any more than he has a special relationship with photons. This is a great illustration and a great picture of what Christ is doing, but like salt and a lot of other things, this is an example. John 10, he says this, John 10, 7 and 9. Christ said to them, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And he talks about that in verse 8, and then he says in verse 9, he says it again, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture through the door, and I'm the door. I am the door. No one pictures Christ as a piece of wood, right, with hinges. No one ever thinks he has a special relationship to doors and hinges, right? It's, it, it's not there anymore, I would say, to take it back to where we started, that those who were eating the, the lamb, the roasted lamb, and eating the unleavened bread thought that there was anything about that in particular. It was obedience in doing that, thinking about substitution, thinking about taking my, my, my leave of, of Egypt and, and not fitting in. It wasn't the element itself. John 10, 7 and 9, I am the vine. Uh, my father, that's wrong. That's John 15, 1, sorry, wrong passage. John chapter 15, verse 1, 
I am the vine, my father is the vine dresser. None of us think he's, he's a vine. These are pictures and, and, and word pictures. And in this case, it's a real picture in an element. It is a, it is a living illustration. He took the cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. His blood is all still in his body, right? There's no pints being lost here. See what I'm saying? There's no thought of that. There's no transubstantiation. There's nothing mystical or magical. The picture is this is, this is, this is my blood. I am the door. I am the light of the world. I am the vine. You are the branches. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins, but it hadn't been. He didn't dump it on the ground. That was the picture, though. He was about to die. He was going to the cross. Then, if that doesn't convince you, I tell you I will not drink again of this blood until that day when I drink the blood anew with you. Is that what it says? This fruit of the vine. I mean, I think that takes this back to what we're talking about. He clarifies in the same sentence. This is not my blood. Oh, yeah, I said it was my blood. Just like I said, I'm the door, I'm the light, I'm, I'm the vine. But that's not the picture. I said, you're the salt of the world. These are pictures here. Pictures that are supposed to represent something that's deeper and, and richer than just stating the facts. And he ties it to an element that is so ingrained in Jewish culture, the eating of the Passover meal, that speaks of their redemption, that this was then memorialized as something they were to do from that day, day forward. Lord's Supper. Now you can turn the page. Some of that information new to some of you? The chart? Smile at me if that was worth your time. Yeah? I hope so. Day of worship. I wanted to cover a few things tonight, but I only have time for two. I want to talk about the day of worship. Modern, that's a relative term. Modern concerns. Uh, been very little noise on this until last couple hundred years. Ellen G. White, for instance, says, Here we find the mark of the beast, the very act of changing the Sabbath into Sunday on the part of the Catholic Church without any authority from the Bible. E.U. Smith, Sunday keeping must be the mark of the beast. You understand what we're talking about? When we talk about the mark of the beast, book of Revelation, you get it, you're lost, you're condemned. You're, you're sent to perdition if you take the mark of the beast. The reception of this mark must be something that involves the greatest offense that can be committed against God. Read again. Repeat. The reception of this mark, worshiping on Sunday, must be something that, that, invi that involves the greatest offense that can be committed against God. That's a big statement. Advent review. The Sunday Sabbath is purely a child of the papacy, right? Clearly the Catholics are the target here. It is the mark of the beast, which again, you can't say anything bigger than that. It's like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The mark of the beast, you're done. If you do it, you're done. It's over. Uh, Leo says, the Sunday keeper will be condemned. It's as easy as that. You go to church on Sunday, sorry, over, okay? I could go on. Uh, quoting things, but that's depressing. Uh, we better figure out whether they're right or not, okay? Let's talk about the Sabbaths of the Bible. 
the Sabbaths of the Bible. You got a chart that looks like this. We're going to look at uh, Hebrews chapter 4, so that we do need you to open your Bibles here. Couldn't possibly fit this all on the screen, so. Hebrews chapter 4. Probably the best place in the New Testament to give us a complete overview of the Sabbaths. Hebrews chapter 4. Just read the whole thing here. Let me catch up with you. Hold on. Read the whole thing. Start in verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest, by the way, that's the word Sabbath. Okay? Sabbath means rest. Rest means Sabbath. Sabbath is the word for rest. Okay? While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us uh, just as to them, speaking here of the Old Testament crew, uh, you'll see. Uh, but the message that they heard did not benefit them because they were not, united, it, they were not united by faith with those who listened. For they who have believed enter that rest. There's our word. For he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Right? That was the Numbers 14, Numbers 12 through 14. They were there at the front door of the promised land. They sent in the spies. They didn't trust God. He said, fine, you're not going to enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. And again, in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, the rest of God, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter the rest because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David in Psalm 95, so long afterward, in, in that it was uh, six, 600 years later, uh, no, uh, 400 years later, he said, uh, in the words already quoted, today, if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Just in those 10 verses right there, and he keeps going on, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. You've got a ton of rests that are referring to different objects. And remember, the word rest means Sabbath. Sabbath, rest, rest, Sabbath. Here's a chart that may help. Let's fill it out. Let's fill it out. Let us fill it out. Start in verse 3. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Clearly, whatever he's talking about here in that particular rest is something I can get into now. I can start resting now. Okay? Let's go to box F. These won't go in order. Okay? Box F. Whatever rest we're talking about, it's something that you and I can enter, and they, this was a first century document, but it's after the coming of Christ. Christ has died, he has been resurrected, and now the offer of forgiveness stands. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about. They can enter that rest. They can enter the Sabbath, okay? 
We see that in verse 3. We see it in verse 6. We see it in verse 9. Okay? Trusting and obeying Christ, right, is that exhortation from the writer of Hebrews to the people. It is a spiritual rest, and it's exhorted. You need to enter it. See to it that nobody fails to enter it. That's where it started. The promise of entering the rest still stands. You should fear that you have failed to reach it. Verse 11, you should strive to enter that rest. That's an oxymoron, right? You should work to enter that rest. Make sure you're in that rest. Get in the rest. You can do it now. Today, if you'd hear his voice, enter the rest. So there's a rest, a Sabbath rest, right? Right now. It's a spiritual rest. That means I'm no longer, as Paul put it in, in Philippians, trusting in my own resume, my own, he didn't use the word resume, but my own righteousness, what I can do, I'm trusting in what Christ did. That's the rest referred to. And again, you can use the word Sabbath if you want. That's the Sabbath that's exhorted here in Hebrews. And it's there, available in 65 AD when the book of Hebrews was written and available for us today. Okay? Verse Three, middle of the verse. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now think that one through. He isn't talking about the rest he's talking about that he wants us to enter. He's talking about them, they, who are not going to enter his rest. And I already told you, this is the group there that was at the front of the promised land that wasn't able to enter it. Numbers 14. This is box C. Kadesh Barnea, 1444 BC. They were at the front door of the promised land and they failed to enter the rest. So what are we defining as rest? Put it down this way. Physical rest for Israel. Israel was wandering through the wilderness after the Exodus. God had taken them out of slavery. He had freed them from the tyranny of the slavery. And now he was going to bring them into a land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bring you into your physical rest for this nation. We have people. Now we need a land. We're going to put you in the land. That will be rest. And in the box C, it was forfeited by Moses' generation. Even Moses on Mount Nebo couldn't go in and, and, and occupy the rest. He died outside the promised land. He failed to enter the rest. The only two guys that entered the rest, right? Caleb and Joshua and all the young people who weren't complicit in, you know, not trusting God. Physical rest, the physical Sabbath. He's equating my spiritual rest that we all need to enter, that he's so desperate that we fear that we don't enter and you need to enter. He's equating that with, in this case, the Sabbath of Israel entering the land at Kadesh Barnea, which they failed to do, forfeited by his generation. Oh, these are small. Oh, you can still read it. Although his works were finished, this is the end of verse 3 and verse 4. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he had somewhere spoken of the seventh day this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all of his works. Now, we're not talking about entry into the promised land. We're not talking about Kadesh Barnea. We're not talking about spiritual rest exhorted for us. We're talking about something else. That goes all the way back, letter A. Letter A speaks of a rest here when he rested from all of his works. Now, he's saying it's not that God was tired, clearly finished. But I'm just saying it was spoken of him that he Sabbathed on the seventh day from all of his works. Okay? Now, that was a template of work and rest. Let's call it God's rest. Don't know why I put that plural there. God's rest. Perhaps because I'm, yeah, I know why I did that. If it's going to be a template of, of rest, work and rest, okay, then it's, it's a cyclical weekly rest. Now, he's done working, but he set the pattern up, and the pattern was rest, cycle of rest. 
template of work and rest. Starts in Genesis 2, right? You weren't killed like you were in the Mosaic Law for violating the rest. If you picked up wood, you weren't killed. It was just, hey, you six days you do your work, seventh day, you don't. Mosaic Law, up the ante more on that in a minute. Verse 5. And again, in this passage, he says, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, we're repeating here, just moving through the passage. Uh, that's the physical rest for Israel. You already wrote that down. It was forfeited by Moses' generation. Verse 6 now, move on. Verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it, that is rest. Did we not already deal with this one? Letter F, the box you filled it in. Now we're talking about the current generation in 65 AD. They needed to enter the spiritual rest that was exhorted here by the preacher, the writer of Hebrews. They needed to trust and obey Christ. Now, verse 6, we're moving through the passage. Second half of verse 6, those formerly who received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. And again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today if you'd hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Where do we find that now? Okay, let's go to box E. In box E... In 1000 BC, 444 years after the Kadesh Barnea event, you got 400 years after the conquest of, of Joshua, now all of a sudden David's writing about, hey, today, if you'd enter, you got to rest. Today, you got to enter his rest. What in the world are you talking about, right? You're a Sabbath keeper. You rest, you work and rest. You religiously keep the Mosaic rest. Uh, the Israelites had already received their natural, uh, nat national rest in the land, now you're talking about there's another rest? See, this is what's so amazing about David. We so underestimate David. Maybe you don't, but I often do. We think about him as the king, and yeah, he's that king. And we think about Bathsheba and Uriah and all that. This, this guy was used. I hate to call him a guy. This king was used to do so many things in terms of, the, of what he wrote in the Psalms regarding the Messiah. The Messianic Psalms are so rich. And here's one that we don't even, even think about. Today, if you hear his voice, don't hear David is talking about a rest that's still to come. Well, the, what, what rest are you talking about? This was a rest, we'll call it this, a spiritual rest that can only be fulfilled in Christ. Christ has to come and fulfill this. This was something future from David's perspective, longed for in David's writings. Obviously, it's something through the pen of the Holy Spirit, being inspired here by the Holy Spirit, being breathed out by God to look forward to Christ. That's Psalm 95, as I said, verses 7 through 11. I'll read it for you real quick. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart as they did at Meribah in the day of Massa in the wilderness when your fathers said, um, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, as the ESV puts it, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathe that generation. And I said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts they have not known my ways, therefore I swore in my rest, they will not enter my rest. So David is thinking of a rest, and he's saying today, if you hear his voice, don't be like them. You need to enter a rest. The writer of Hebrews is saying, now Christ has come, you can enter the rest. David says you need to enter the rest, but he has no mechanism or means by which to enter the rest. It's a lot like the whole Melchizedekian thing that he brings up. That, in that case, a thousand years after Melchizedek in the book of, of, of Genesis, he's looking forward to another Melchizedek, but he's talking in the present. And here he says, today, enter that rest. He talks about a spiritual rest, and he's looking forward to it in a thousand BC. Joshua, verse 8, we're just reading right through the text here. If Joshua had given them rest... 
God would not have spoken of another day later on. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Now, go to box D. Think about it. We just had seen rest as defined as what Moses couldn't get because he was turned away and his generation was loathed by God. Now, Joshua actually does get the conquest. The physical rest for Israel is achieved. They get it. They get to move into the land flowing with milk and honey. So the Sabbath, the rest of God for the people of God, was accomplished, at least physically, in the conquest of Canaan in the 15th century before Christ. Now, weirdly, in verse 9, so then, wow, we're all over the map. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Now, this one's multifaceted. Letter B. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A lot of double, double definitions here, but let's put it down this way and let me try to explain it. Ceremonial rest for Israel. In the law, Exodus 31, a lot of specific instructions about the Sabbath. Exodus 20, of course, is the Ten Commandments, where the Sabbath is put there in the middle of the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments. It's the only ceremonial law that we have in the Ten Commandments. The others are moral law, as you know. Uh, but here is this command about the ceremony of all these things now you cannot do on this day. This is no longer a pattern for work and rest. This is not something that has to do with the Moses' generation not getting into the promised land. This is not a discussion of, of the uh, coming conquest of Israel. This is not the spiritual rest that David talked about. It's not the rest that, that uh, uh, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting his people to get. This is a rest that becomes a ceremony like all the other ceremonies of, of, of the Decalogue, I'm sorry, of the, uh, of, the, of the Pentateuch, of the five books of Moses, that set up for us all these things like, I don't know, the Passover, the sacrifice of a lamb, uh, the sacrificial system, and the, the, the guilt offerings, the thank offerings. And now we have the, 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 not just the Sabbath day, but as I have written down here, you have the Sabbath year, then you have the Jubilee year, the seventh, seventh right? The, every 50th year. You have all of these things that relate to the Sabbaths of God now codified in the ceremonial law. Which, if you're still in Hebrews, go to chapter 10, where he starts to lay all this out. Since then, the law was a shadow of the good things to come, not the moral law. Clearly, that's our guide for living. But it says, instead of the true form of the realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices. And he gets into the temple and the sacrifices and all of this. He says, by the, by the same sacrifices continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year after year. And in the festivals, there's an anticipation of the forgiveness year after year. And in the Sabbath rest, there's a picture that David saw through the inspiration of the Spirit, looking forward to the very rest that the writer of Hebrews was, was calling his people to in the rest that we get from not having any confidence in ourselves, but completely in the finished work of Christ, which makes no sense without Christ. The ceremonial law, along with the, I mean, the ceremonial call for rest, along with the rest of the ceremonial law, is nothing other than, as the book of Hebrews, the whole, the whole proposition of the book is showing, is, is, is all pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. So then, we'll just keep reading through this. It, it says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people. 
Well, the people in Israel were continuing to keep the Sabbath. He was calling them out of that. Uh, but this, the rest that was, he was looking forward to, like box F, was the one that he was drawing everybody's focus to. Trusting and obeying in Christ. Putting your confidence in Him. And then I've got to say, and I can't, I, you know, this is not as clear in this text as it is in the book of, of Revelation. But the Bible, and I'll just read you one, one passage. I don't even think, what I give you? Rev 7. I like 14 better, but let's give you this. This is God's ultimate rest. God's ultimate rest. Rev 14 puts it this way. This is verses 11 through 13. It talks about those who are, are lost, right? It talks about those who receive the mark of the beast, which is not Saturday worship or Sunday worship. And he calls for the endurance of the, those who keep the commands of God. I, I heard a voice in heaven. Oh, that boy, that, I didn't put it all down there. Let me turn there. Give me a second. Please. Yeah, I'm looking at verse 10. Well, verse 9. Another angel, third angel, followed in a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast or its image and receives the mark on his forehead or its hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out in full strength, the cup of his anger. He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark. Here is a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Now the picture of Sabbath is there's no Sabbath, right, for those who are lost and judged. And the eternal Sabbath are those when the Christians who trust in Christ and hold to the testimony of Jesus, they, as it's put, keep the commandments of God and put their faith in Christ. Those are the people that receive an eternal Sabbath once they die. That's the ultimate Sabbath. They get rest, and those who reject Christ, they, they don't get rest. They never get rest. The rest and the Sabbath rest is now experienced in my relationship with God, the exhorted rest of, of Hebrews 11 or Hebrews 4. But what I'm looking forward to is a rest that remains for the people of God. It remains in perpetuity in, in Jews that refuse to come to Christ. It remains for us spiritually as we trust in Christ. What was that, box F? Right? And it will ultimately, box G, come when we die. We enter into our rest. Yeah. And, and nothing wrong with Rev 7 either, but the, I like the contrast of, of Rev 14, rest and no rest. The rest we get when we're done with this life. The ultimate rest that comes. Do we fill in every box? So much more there I had no time for. If you want, there was a sermon I did on this where I get a lot more detail. You can look that up on, online, and it comes from my exposition of, of Hebrews 4, if you want more on that. All right, let me just end with this real quick. Cer ceremonial fulfillments. With all the people that want us to worship on Saturday, uh, all I got to say is I got it covered because I do both days. <laughs> no, just kidding. I got a lot to say. I already turned your attention to Hebrews 10. We read a little bit of that. How about John 4? We don't need to turn there, but you remember that discussion in John chapter 4. Um, in John chapter 4, there's all this discussion about the external ceremonies of what hill to worship on. We talked about that last week. 
and he says, time is coming and now is, where those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. Had nothing to do with the ceremonies of the ceremonial law. Those were all passe, as the book of Hebrews says, and we should have read the rest of chapter 10, but we have no time. Colossians 2. You, it's hard to get around these statements. Let no one take you captive by philosophy, empty deceit, according to human tradition, or the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You've been filled in him, the head who is, has all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. This is not about getting circumcised. This is about a circumcision that you can't do through a ceremony. The putting off of the body of flesh, the condemnation that came on Christ instead of us by the circumcision of Christ who raised us from the dead. You were dead in your trans, trans, trespasses in the, circumcision, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. Um, he says, then he did that by canceling the, the record of the debt that stood against us, nailed it to the cross, disarmed all the rulers and authorities, took everything that was against us and, and canceled it out. Therefore, no one should pass judgment, speaking of those ceremonies like circumcision, on you with regards to issues of food, drink, festival, new moon, or Sabbath. These were a shadow of the things that were to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. I mean, that's the essence of the whole book of Hebrews right there, saying, listen, the point was, all of this pointed to Christ, whether it was the cutting off of foreskins, whether it was the dietary laws of Leviticus, or whether it was the Sabbath and new moon or jubilee festivals of the Sabbaths throughout the, 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 the 14th chapter of, of Exodus, or the 31st chapter of Exodus. Galatians 4 and 5. No time for that. Um, same thing, though. Why would you turn back? His real concern in, in Galatians is circumcision. Why would you turn back to circumcision, right? And, and, and it makes no sense. And then he says in verse 10 of Galatians 4, and to observing days and months and seasons and years. Why would you do that? That makes no sense. The whole point of, of this is that Christ has set us free from what? Moral laws? No. We're free to obey God now. We're free from the tyranny of sin, but we're free from elementary principles of the world, which were these things that were to lead us to Christ, these symbolic pictures that included circumcision, and as it says, observing days and observing months, seasons, and years. Done with that. This one I want you to look at, Romans 14. We'll look at two passages real, real quick here. Romans 14. Taught on this not too long ago. As for the one who's weak in faith, I'll start reading, you can catch up. Romans 14, 1. Welcome him and don't quarrel over opinions. Now look at the way that's stated there. Opinions. One person believes he can eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Either way, eat it, don't eat it, doesn't matter. Verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. He will be upheld, regardless of his dietary patterns, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another. Wow. Well, absolutely. We had 1,000-plus years of that. We had 1,400 years of that. One day was held above another. Not just the pattern of work and rest. That was pre-Mosaic law, and we should all still adhere to that. But when it came to the codification of the ceremonial law that you had to make that day holy, and holy by that I mean is it had to have all these regulations and stipulations about you can't work at all on that day. That was the picture of how Christ was going to do all the work for us, and we can't contribute to it, even an iota, not even a little bit. 
And he says, in this case, when you think about esteeming that day over the other, he says, listen, one esteems the day, verse 5, over another, and the other one esteems them all the same. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. When it comes to what day you worship or what day is more important, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. They want to observe it? Great. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. If you're genuinely a Christian, you cannot get circumcised and trust in that. Right? That was the condemnation of Galatians. And yet Paul gets Timothy circumcised in the book of Acts. Why? He's not trusting in it. It was just a practical matter. He says, here, you can worship on Saturday if you want, right? If that's a day you think is, is, is the day to do it, great, doesn't matter. You worship on Tuesday, doesn't matter. See? But you cannot trust in that. You cannot do it as a way to please God. You cannot think that that is in some way meritorious in your relationship with God. One more passage, 1 Thess 4, just to compare it. If Sabbath is still in vogue, and by that I mean the ceremonial law of Sabbath keeping, then I would expect a whole different attitude in, in Colossians chapter 2 and in Romans chapter 14, not to mention Hebrews 10, John 4, Galatians 4. And to be fair, John 4 doesn't mention the day, but certainly the form of ceremony. First Thess 4, look at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, and not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who don't know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all of these things. As we told you beforehand, we solemnly warned you, right? For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, not man, but God who gives you the Holy Spirit. Picture that. That's related to sexual ethics. Picture that statement, right? And lay it on top of dietary laws and Sabbath keeping in Romans 14 or Colossians 2, and you go, well, that's what I would expect, right? If this is still in vogue. Instead, we get a whole different thing. Hey, fully convinced in your own mind, worship on whatever day you want. Here, though, he says, if you're going to disregard the moral law of God, man, we're going to solemnly warn you. This is a big deal. Don't let anybody transgress his brother in this. As a matter of fact, if you disregard what we're telling you as it relates to sexual ethics, you're not disregarding us, you're disregarding God. We have nothing like that in the New Testament regarding the Sabbath day. Why? Because it's part of the ceremonial code that was to point us to rest in Christ that was ultimately preparing us for the rest that we receive at the end of our lives. That's half of a lecture and not enough for some of you. And if you're accosted by Sabbatarians, get this book by Don Carson. I know there's a guy out there who's their brainiac who's written a lot of books on Sabbath keeping, and he's very uh, persuasive. Uh, Don Carson will deal with him, and he's, just one, he's the editor. There's lots of contributors to this, evangelical contributors, to show um, the untenable position of those who want to convince you that the Sabbath day is still in vogue. It's not. You want to worship on Saturday? Hey, we got a service on Saturday. In the summer, it's even before sunset, so you're technically okay. All right. 171 slides with one minute to go. That's the economy of time there, huh? Let's pray. God, I know this is, uh, you know, under the hood, 
heavy lifting in some way for at least a Thursday night lecture. It's not college, it's not a seminary, and so for us to do this, I know this is a lot, and, and it's thrown out there, and I just pray, God, that the receptivity of our crowd tonight would be such that this would uh, make a difference, that there would be not only a greater education, which I hope is the case in their hearts regarding these doctrinal matters, but there would be a, a, a real, uh, as I said at the beginning prayer, that there would be some stakes in the ground that are put there that would help us to, uh, to not be driven and tossed by every wind of doctrine, as Paul put it, that we could, we could hold steady on, on what we understand about the Lord's Supper, and if there's this, uh, the jury's still out in some people's mind, I pray they do their homework and uh, really come to some conclusions regarding this. Certainly, they know at this church we're going to uphold the memorial view of the, of the Lord's Supper, and we're certainly going to recognize that the Sabbath day is passe. It, uh, it is not something, at least in the mosaic, through the mosaic lens, that is in vogue for today. Certainly, the pattern of work and rest is always applicable for us, and we should adhere to it, and we disregard that to our own physical peril and even spiritual uh, fatigue. So help us, God, to be uh, resting as we ought. But when it comes to the matters of, of which day to worship, these are things we need to have a, an opinion on or we would have to change churches, uh, and certainly the Lord's Supper as well. And these touch us in our church calendar all the time. So, God, thanks for our study. Thanks for our time. Thanks for the, the attentiveness of this crowd, and I pray it would be enriching for their hearts and for their lives, uh, certainly different than a Sunday, but I, I trust helpful in kind of laying a, a real firm foundation as they continue to develop and learn and grow in their understanding of you and your word. Thanks for our study. Continue this study, I pray, from week to week with just an increasing excitement and anticipation and appetite to know more about the church, how it functions as we get into how it's organized and how it should be run. Give us a real uh, unity and cohesion in our thinking about these things for the good of the church and uh, just for the peace that it should exist among us. I pray that uh, for your glory and for our good in Jesus' name. Amen.